Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. These students had never been integrated with neurotypical peers, and the way that we integrated them was through prayer. And so it just left us astonished to think, oh my goodness, the nature of the liturgy is friendship. The nature of the liturgy is self-giving love one to another. The Living Church serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Welcome, podcast listeners, to another episode of the Living Church Podcast. What do you say during Lent to someone? Happy Lent. Happy Lent. A blessed Lent. There we go. A blessed Lent to you. I hope it is. Many of you who listen to this podcast are pastors. I love that. How many of you who are pastors also run a school as part of your church. Or maybe if you don't, you've thought about it. Because when you're trying to consider your budget, but also mission and ministry, churches of many sizes make this decision to offer an educational service of some kind, whether it's a small daycare or a prestigious Episcopal prep school. And these are often built on classical school models. Now, if you don't know what a classical school is, What does this mean? What does this mean that students sit around reading Moby Dick all day? Well, maybe some of the students, some of the time, yes, read Moby Dick. But classical education refers specifically to a model of education centered on a Western classical trivium of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So knowing, thinking, and communicating well. And this is what it's based on. And so if you can do a classical school well, you can give kids a remarkable and really interesting education. You can also do really well for your budget. But here's a bone that I've always had to pick with classical education. Here it comes. Does it produce snobby kids? Put another way, does it shelter privileged kids even further and prevent kids with disadvantages from experiencing a remarkable community of learning? Well, one way to negotiate this is, of course, through scholarships or through careful intentionality in enrollment or curriculum development. But my guest today has another idea. He has also explored ways to make sure that kids with disabilities, including neurodivergence, 
are welcomed and integrated into a classical community. Today's conversation isn't a how-to so much as the story of one church's journey, as they're still discovering how to build a classical classroom, which is more and more shaped by welcoming kids with intellectual disabilities and differences. Kids who may never read Moby Dick for themselves, and that is okay. What they're discovering is an unusual model for classical education, but they're also discovering an unexpected ministry of healing, both for their own community and in the lives of the kids. My guest today is the Reverend Nathan Carr. Nate is a bivocational priest serving as vicar of St. John's, Oklahoma City, and headmaster of the Academy of Classical Christian Studies. The Academy is a multi-campus school, which is now serving 1,000 pre-K to 12 students across the Oklahoma City metro. He's also the author of Festive School on the importance of festivity in Christian education. You can find it through a link in the show notes today. He and his wife, Sarah, have six children who bless their home, including kiddos with neurodivergence. Nate has also written an article for us on the Living Church's award-winning blog, Covenant, and it is about neurodivergence in the classical classroom. It inspired this conversation today. I highly recommend the article as well as our blog. It's really good. You can find our blog at covenant.livingchurch.org, and you can find Nate's article through a link in the show notes today. Now sharpen your pencils and warm up your singing voice. We're headed to school, but it may be a bit different from what you're used to. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Nate, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Amber. I'm, I'm just overjoyed. And thank you. Thank you, Living Church. You have a long road with classical education. You've got a journey with neurodivergence. And the place that I would love to start is where you started with classical education. So how did, well, first, how would you explain classical education to people? What is it? And how did its qualities first attract you as part of your vocation? Classical education or Christian education in classics is what I often say is an attempt and a, a deliberate form of discipleship of a particular understanding of a soul uh, towards wisdom and virtue. So we uh, assist parents in shaping students' affections for truth and for goodness and for beauty, for the great benefit of the church in particular and for the greater glory of God. And there's several ways that that is delivered to students, some very expected and some uh, that over time we are shocked to discover. And so, yes, a, a Christian education in classics includes great book studies. We're reading over 75 major Western classics in their entirety between third and 12th grade. We have five years of Latin with three years of optional readings courses in Latin. Uh, we teach uh, musical settings long since forgotten, especially when it comes to K-12 kiddos. Mm. Um, so we're teaching polyphony through use of canticle. Our kids can, they self-lead the hours canting. Uh, I no longer have to lead those things as a trained cantor. There, so all of the things that you would expect, but one difference, perhaps, perhaps this is a difference. It's at least a difference with some schools that prize the classical tradition, as we do. 
and perhaps this is resonant with other schools like us, but we are so focused on the formative process rather than a simple product of matriculation rates that we've been opened up as a school to other ways of thinking, leaving aside whether or not 86% of our graduating classes are matriculating into the Ivy League, which I've never even studied. I have no idea. Wait, wait, wait. Let me get this clear. You don't have, you run a classical school. Your focus is so much on the actual formation of the student. You don't actually have stats on where they end up matriculating after they graduate. I have an operations team that has every statistic. Oh, they, I was like, wait, no one is taking those statistics. No, forgive me. I've misrepresented. I'm simply saying that given the qualitative nature of our mission, the qualitative nature of our portrait of a graduate, um, that those kinds of statistics are no longer as um, important. And so even as large of a school as we now are, uh, the missional elements associated with uh, the God-imaged soul tend to be the kinds of things we talk about, even at the leadership team level. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. and and yeah, for people who for people who might be running classical schools or thinking about running classical schools who are listening, focusing on the formation of the soul, do you find that you know you're hurting for enrollment, or you're healthy with enrollment, or your dance card is filled up and people are busting off the waiting list, you know, what is, what does it look like? It's completely overwhelming. If you, so I'm going to give you a bunch of numbers that are just remarkable, but let me say this first, the beginning of this journey, I I didn't, you know, I joined year two, this entire enterprise. This is well before I'm head of school, these last 12 years. And I very much looked at my my wife and our young children, and I said, you realize this is just going to be our babies, a handful of others, and a lot of hard work. It's going to be small. There's no market for this. This is not a city in which classics have rung true and the souls. And the... So I've and, and, and I have been exactly wrong in every way, exactly, exactly wrong. So I have a thousand students um, with wait lists on almost every grammar school grade. This is spread across three campuses. So there's a pre-K through eighth grade feeder in North Oklahoma City. There's a pre-K through eighth grade feeder in South Oklahoma City, and they all feed at downtown high school where I sit today with a busing system. So you can one-stop drop your brood and we'll take it from there. There are 200 on staff, faculty and staff that work here at the academy. And there used to be six, right? There used to be 26 kids and six staff members. Um, this, this thing is, I mean, we're holding on for dear life. It has become so, so, so successful. And that's God's grace all the way down. Uh, because we certainly had no idea what we were getting into when we launched this thing. Can you tell us a little about when you did launch this thing? When you were introduced to classical education, this became very quickly, there was a sense of calling associated with it. Can you tell the story through that lens? So um, it's 2006. My son is just born. My son is born with no real 
aortic valve tissue immediately enters heart surgery, and we realize that we've got a long road in Oklahoma City rather than the whatever possibility lay on the other side of seminary education. He's a senior now and doing well, but the, he, that was just a key part. Hard moment. You got a child, you got to take care of this baby, and you got to rethink how you're going to do some stuff. Well, I'm a Starbucks store opener at that point. I've opened the first Starbucks in Oklahoma City with a team. It's so fun. Go Starbucks. So I love business and I love uh, mapping pro formas and I've started other businesses. There's just this business theme, but I don't have a church yet. I'm not ordained yet. I don't have any of that. Um, hmm. So the way that this all mashed up was now that I'm in Oklahoma City for a while, there's a school that I've heard about, a school startup. They're, they're, they're meeting basically as a co-op. No one's even really being paid yet. Parents are seeing, can we do this? I'll be teacher. I can bring my kids. But they're about to launch more formally. Okay, let's do this. Let's institutionalize. Let's do the thing. This is oh. an interdenominational, independent, private school district that is Christian. Anglican rights in its, in its customaries and its prayers, but represents 130 churches across 16 cities in the middle of Oklahoma. And so I have everything from Latin Mass Catholics to, you know, the, the one of the daughters of the largest mega church in the Midwest, his his daughter here, and, and everything in between. You know, we're we're probably 15% Roman Catholic in our attendance. So we're non-parochial. We're, we're not a parochial school. I'm independent. Mm, Even okay. though I'm an Episcopal priest, if that has not already been said. Okay. So you become introduced to this co-op. And what about it sparks this draw to Christian education through classics? So what immediately is resonant with me is Western Civ was the departure point for me choosing seminary because I was a biology undergrad. That's where Lady Theology called out to me was in the classics. Mm -hmm. So then I think, oh my goodness, there's a group of families in Oklahoma City who would not wait until someone's sophomore year of college to introduce them to the classics, but would dial that all the way back to pre-kindergarten education, who are these people? And I'm all in. And I'm so in that I moved my master's thesis. Uh, I have a, an MA in religion from a Presbyterian seminary before I went to Wycliffe. And that master's thesis was classical and Christian paideia uh, in the writings of three fourth century church fathers, Basil of Caesarea, Augustine of Hippo, and Chrysostom. St. Stephen, first deacon, first martyr, his, he has that three-chapter sermon just before he's stoned, and he says, and Moses was trained and educated in the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. He's so deeply enculturated in Egyptian culture and hieroglyphics and architecture, right? The prince of Egypt that he's able to lead God's people to free, you know, so... Mm. Deep, deep, deep forms of education and discipleship. Now I'm off to the races, right? Now, I, you know, at age 25, I've, I've now written a whole 75 pages on this. So I'm now a genius. I've perfected data. <laughs> Let's go build a school. I'm all in. You know, I'm just, I can get carried away, friend. And I did. There you go.
That's what happened. Last Thursday, we celebrated our 10-year anniversary with a huge gala here in Oklahoma City. We have two pre-K through eighth grade feeders that feed one high school. So those are big highlight moments. You know, you finally have your first graduating class. You finally have your, your first sports team. All those things are true of us. There's all these firsts that I've got to see firsthand. And that's been pure joy, God's, God's perfect grace to us. And then, um, and then I adopt two little boys. My wife and I adopt two little boys, I should say. And there's a whole story there, but this is where neurodivergence enters the life of the academy. Because we realize in just a matter of a few weeks that their wiring, trauma and beyond, is so dramatically different than the children that we otherwise had been parenting at that point, that new and different resources would need to be available and probably and likely brand new approaches to how we engage their little minds. And in, mm. with respect to one of my sweet peas, uh, his little body. So that was a monumental moment six years ago when 504 plans entered and clinicians entered the life of the academy, which are now 120 plus in number. And and so we can come back to that. But, you know, the, the last thing that I should probably say, and I've mentioned this, is we say the hours. That's the primary focus of my book, Festive School. And it's a key piece of how neurodivergence has a resonance here. Interestingly enough, I would not have known that beforehand, but liturgy provides safe spaces in a way that I wouldn't have known, honestly. But all that to say, you have children across, you have a thousand students daily saying matins and saying terse and saying noonday prayers or sext or we, we sing even song together every single day, and it's fully known, memorized. It's, it's really a part of them. And all of that has been cultivated over the last 10 years. Yeah, thank you. And I would love to talk about the details of some changes that you've made in your school, the structure of your school, in the classroom. So sort of beyond classroom aids or beyond having a, a special needs separate classroom or a special needs friendly classroom. It's sort of even deeper than that. And it's tied in with the religious life of the school, philosophically, practically, structurally. But before we get into that, I just want to mention a person whose name has not come up yet, who you talked about a little bit in the covenant article you just wrote for us, St. Joseph of Cupertino. And I did a little Wikipediaing on St. Joseph. And I found out some interesting things about him. According to traditional Franciscan accounts, he was considered, quote, remarkably unclever, but <laughs> he would experience miraculous visions and he would levitate throughout his life. And so this made him someone who was people avoided him or made fun of him. And he kept trying to join monasteries and religious communities. There was something in him that was attracted to the monastic life, to the regularity. I would assume something about the prayers, the discipline, the hours. Interestingly, also his mother gave birth to him in a stable, like someone else's mother that we know. And then he was eventually, he worked in the stable for a monastery 
of conventual friars and he worked there long enough that they were got to know him and were impressed by his simplicity, his holiness of life. And he kept levitating, but it stopped being a hindrance. It, it became like sort of a quirky aspect of his life in the monastery. I thought, I thought this was fascinating. And is he, you know, is he the patron saint of the school? I love the question. You know, St. Joseph is probably not um, quite ascended to uh, the patron saint. He's 12 weeks old. At our, he's, only, he's been with us 12 weeks. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, and we had 15 existing saints in our house system. But he is ascending quickly. His his ascendancy is is impressive. Who would be the patron or patroness of this particular initiative or this particular program here at the academy? And Saint Jesus, Saint Joseph of Cupertino just leapt off the page for reasons you've already um, elucidated. We loved his uh, singularity. We loved that despite a list that one might otherwise be tempted to call, hmm, difficult personality to figure, that he was so widely popular at the end of his life, he would have to be hidden by the other monks to even say his prayers. His miracles became uh, so prolific. And so I love that coupled with years of confusing responses to him by every just about every adult he knew and after years of people really trying to figure out how to relate well how to figure this out you know he was kicked out of one monastery and then had to go to the franciscans and he's one of these sweet kids that you picture living in his mom's basement every few months until he figures out the next thing. It kind of reminds me of a special needs student, Nate, that goes from school to school and people don't quite know how to support her or, you know, how to really figure out how she operates to really give her the help that she needs. Yes. So yes, that's exactly right. His story is one. Of... Or And not just the help, but also to give her a place to flourish in her own gifts yeah gifts being so different that his almost non-inclusion later developed into being the only one of the monks in his monastery whose name we still remember mm, wow. it's a complete mm -hmm. narrative shift what are we missing and in, in only addressing Christian education to neurotypical kiddos. Anyway, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. Hey there, podcast listener. If you've listened to the podcast for a while, you probably know that The Living Church is not just a podcast. Oh no, my friend. TLC is a publishing ministry with a unique magazine, independent church news reporting, a stellar theology blog, resources for parish ministry, many of them free. I could go on. Stop me now. Stop me now. We're rooted in the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion, but we have a big heart for the unity of all God's people. You know that I love that you're here, but I don't want you to just stay in the podcast space and miss out on other ways our ministry might serve you. You can go to livingchurch.org and see what all TLC offers. 
How can we serve you today? One way we might serve you is coming up in September. We're hosting an event with an amazing community of friends at All Souls Episcopal Church in Oklahoma City, a conference called The Human Pilgrimage. What does it mean to be human? How do we live fully as creatures loved, limited, and liberated by God? Join The Living Church September 26th to 28th in Oklahoma City and be refreshed by three days of world-class keynotes, friendship, and meditation on who we are as creatures in Christ. Right now, you also get 15% off all tickets with the promo code EARLYBIRD. Go to livingchurch.org forward slash events for more information and to buy your tickets. And I hope to see you there. So can you walk me through how you have responded more and more deeply and structurally to neurodivergent student needs? Because in responding, you've also discovered that some of the things that they need and that everyone needs were already there. That's right. Let me start with these 504s and build to our more recent program of St. Joe. We call them the St. Joe's kids. But we so enter my two sweet peas and dozens of others. But I had a front row seat to the children I live with, the children that eat at my table, the children whose homework I share with them each night, and realizing that um, something needed to be done, the clinicians needed to be called, simply to help me get better language about how certain mental faculties operated in others. And I was obsessed with figuring this out in my oldest of my two adopted. He's 10. And so what that led to, so the first thing that we started doing that ended up benefiting every child was something called trust-based relational intervention, TBRI. And so for um, a child, in this case, you be careful here. It's his story that someday he'll have to listen to on a podcast, and I don't want him to be like, Dad, um, who's um, because of s- some difficulties in the past, entered the world, and the world as a structure, and adults as part of the structure, and with suspicion and a failure of heart at times. TBRI is a way of pulling out of the recesses of his, we call it his downstairs brain, where he climbs back up into his upstairs brain. And I think he taught, he tells this story. So I think I'm safe with this one when he listens to it and when he's 26. This isn't a TBRI episode. I won't get into all the features of that. But the point being, by simply attending to one five-year-old who would not abide the simplistic and long since abandoned attention to structures of the academy. We went back just to him and many others and realized there are things that we're doing across every classroom that are exactly wrong, that have no insight into the nature of the soul of a child. And it took a little boy in my home to teach me that. And so now we do TBRI training, not just with the special needs crowd and not just with the clinicians and not with just, you know, the aides, but with every teacher. Huge breakthrough. And in six years, 125 kids are now in that program. 
whether from physical disability, a straightforward physical disability like blind in one eye, um, cochlear implant in one ear, for example, et cetera. We're able to remap the way we do everything and they can absolutely succeed here at the academy in addition to trauma-based neurodivergence and so on. Can you give an example, Nate, of trust-based relational intervention and how it might differ from the way that things are normally done or the way you were previously doing them? Yeah. So trust-based relational intervention paradigm gives classroom structure, even from an early age, a more Socratic bent. So it leads us more deeply into Socratic conversation-based attempts at learning and loving. We had never thought that you could, instead of dictating um, to, to a child who does not feel safe and does not have the inner soul architecture that carries forward self-esteem in the same way that you can you can begin a conversation with a group of students who get to set the the classroom up with the teacher and establish it together as participants in culture making the same things that I would have been that I would have put on the rule list anyway but to make them a participant in building the place um, that they can now abide and engage. This would be a simple um, example, but for a child, so this is specific to my kiddo, but you can, this goes beyond. And I briefly, the Academy has beautiful and sweet, joy-filled, silent lines as they move classroom to classroom. As um, This is not, the thing that I'm trying to describe is different than mere um, delight-driven um, Montessori approach. And I, that's not even to personally contest delight-driven Montessori approach. We have centers time like anybody else that would have that spirit to it. Um, I, just to give different shape, this isn't merely mob uh, rule or delight-driven exclusivity. So with my own son, if I offer his full participation in sorting the chores of a Saturday evenly between my six children. He ends up assigning himself as many of the hard chores as anybody else, A. B, feels a part of the family rather than the imposter or the outsider in doing that and in rolling that out because he's, he's among the youngest in the family and there's three teenagers above him and is able to then engage the responsibility that he was going to have all along. We're all doing it. You can even assign dad's chores for all I care. And it builds trust measures, in his case in particular, um, and a sense of self and a sense of the family 
that's not mere assignment. So you're constantly reaching for those who by nature or by an unfortunate nurture situation or whatever, cannot seem to reach into um, the place, the safe place of being a part of the community in a way that feels first nature, that I, I'm now complete and I should have been here all along. Mm-hmm. TBRI is creating weird strategies to pull everybody into the one thing that we always wanted to do anyway. That's what it's doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, okay. it does make sense. The children, the children and the young adults are participating in building the community and how the community functions. And it's a given that it's going to function. It's a given that there will be joy and that there will be boundaries. It's a given that everyone will have certain things they have to do every day. But the way that that's arranged and 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 participation in shaping the life around it, things like making decisions about assignments and how they're passed out, or maybe the the literal you know shape of how the desks are arranged. I mean, this this makes sense to me. I can already start imagining as someone who has been in a classroom and been a teacher, the ways that this might work out that would be inviting community participation and leadership opportunities that say to all the students, including neurodivergent students, students with disabilities, we need you. We can't do this without you. Like, you know, we need you in the circle and then building that sense of belonging. That's what I'm hearing. Exactly. A school is a community. We're a Christian community. So there's a spiritual dynamic. Friendship is never anything except self-giving love one to another um, across every conceivable alleged barrier. And it's the only way that a completeness can come to a culture. So let's invite them in. I mean, those are things we have to talk about constantly. But Mm. Yeah. yeah. And if, yeah, I'm thinking now about the kinds of adults. I mean, if this is, if this is something that, that young people can carry throughout their lives, the kinds of communities that they may always find around them and find themselves leaders in it could be a beautiful thing. Can you tell us, Nate, about how prayer fits into all of this? One of the first stories you told me that made me say, oh, we got to have Nate on the podcast had to do with prayer. And you're seeing something akin to a miracle in some of your neurodivergent students who were nonverbal. Can you tell some of those stories and and how is prayer proving itself and how is worship proving itself as something that is absolutely God's gift for everyone and something that's also healing and therapeutic? Yeah. So here's the story begins with a shift. When we as a school prayerfully intervened. We had six weeks to rescue the RBTs, the the one-on-one personal therapist, eight weeks to fundraise, to get um, board approvals, to shift it over where accreditation still works. I mean, there's just this very, very tiny window that you think God alone can pull this off. 
because you're essentially propping up an entire school within a school in the last half of your summer. And God's faithfulness throughout was um, lovingly experienced. So the big one of the big shifts was these are kids being pulled out of a program that was neurodivergent exclusive. And the only way that the academy could do this was just to integrate them with neurotypicals. And there were a handful of ways immediately that we knew we could integrate. And then there were a handful of ways that we just thought we could test over time. Who knows? And so we knew we could eat lunch with them. And that would be grand. Uh, we, we knew that we could say the hours with them, the, the three primary hours of Matin's noonday prayers and even song. We knew they could be a part of that. We knew some of the house competitions out on the lawn when you know, Basil House is going up against House of Chrysostom, that we that they could be a part of those. And then then we knew we'd have to figure out how their curriculum was going to be different. Maybe someday. Um, we knew some of the on-site therapies or off-site therapies. Okay, that's going to be different. We'll have to we'll have to figure that part out of the day. Well, inside of 10 weeks of simply going to prayer and lunch. Oh, and lunch includes prayer. Just spending time with neurotypical peers and neurotypical peers spending time with them, hearing the sung praises of God's people, these three hours a day on repeat, repeat, repeat. Um, we started seeing some remarkable and miraculous things. So these are these are nine students. These are nine students coming from an existing school where they've been for a while. They're 7 to 14 years old in range, and only one came as verbal, uh, understandably verbal. I think mm -hmm. perhaps others had one and two word phrases that they could use repetitively to more or less get through a conversation, yes, no, and so on. But there was only one that was understandably and more comprehensively verbal. And he was one of the, he was one of, on the younger end. He's one of the seven-year-olds or whatever. So again, 10 weeks in, exclusively participating as far as full integration is concerned in prayers and lunch, two additional students became verbal. And that, and the one change, there's two variables at play, right? And they're one and the same, really. One is they're now integrated. They've never, these students had never been integrated with neurotypical, neurotypical peers. And the way that we integrated them was through prayer. And so it just left us astonished to think, oh my goodness, the nature of the liturgy is friendship. The nature of the, the liturgy is self-giving love one to another. The, the nature of the liturgy is to give ourselves to Almighty God and to one another in the building up of the one church of jesus christ and we're all now winning and um and anyway they're the you know these are now the mascots of the school these blessed children um, so anyway there you go there's some of the insight that we've had in 12 weeks we'll see if it continues i pray it does and it's just been 12 weeks that <laughs> that's it <laughs> what I didn't realize. I thought this had been going for years. So when you said St. Joseph of Cupertino has been an informal patron saint for 12 weeks, that's what you meant. 12 weeks in a fully integrated neurotypical school into a um, 
gave, we now have three out of nine who have found their voice. They found their voice. They're now seen. You know, it's just unbelievable. So yes, at some point though, how does this work out at a granular level? Because there's answers. What's a BCBA? What's an RBT? Why one-on-one? All those things are part of the the stew, but... um, Yeah, I think if even, Nate, we might have people who, sometimes I have people who write in and say, I loved that episode, I want to hear more about it. And then, you know, we could do an on-demand part two. But maybe we just pause there and say, if people listen to this and they say to themselves, I would really love to hear more from Father Nate. Please tell me more about what you're doing. Can they just get directly in touch with you and have a a phone conversation with you about some of this? Of course. Let's put my email in the, the, the notes. Okay. Okay. I hope I didn't put you on the spot just there. No, not at all. But you seem delighted always to share more about this. And I've been talking today and we have so not had enough time to talk about all of this. I look forward to talking more with the Reverend Nathan Carr. Nate, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Amber. God bless you. God bless Living Church. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church podcast, a ministry of the Living Church. If you're interested in reaching out to Father Nate, reading some of his work, or learning more about trust-based relational intervention, check out the show notes today. In two weeks, we have the treat of sitting down with Orthodox theologian John Baer. Oh, he and I talk about many things, but mostly Gregory of Nyssa and the question, what does it mean to be human? Subscribe to this podcast and don't miss an episode. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson, and I'm Amber Noel, your host. It's been good to be with you. Peace.